0: So now we are in week four. That was your first test. (laughs) Week four of our class about covenant theology, God has a plan for every part of your life. And so this week we are going to look at the covenant of grace in the Old Testament. Now again, just so that you know where we're going... Let me ask it Socratically. Who can tell me what is a distinguishing characteristic of every one of Paul's letters? Romans. They're almost all divided into how many parts? Two parts, right? Whether it's Romans or Corinthians, first or second, or Galatians, you've got the first part where Paul gives you doctrine. Romans is the easiest way to describe this. In Romans, that's uh, chapters 1 through 11. And then you have the implications of this, the application of it, and following on. That's why Romans 12 begins, now therefore, brothers, I beseech you. And there's application that comes and flows from it. We're doing that here in this class. So we have looked at what is a covenant in week one. We looked at the covenant of works in week two. We looked at the covenant of grace in week three. Now this week, we're going to look at the covenant of grace as it unfolds in the Old Testament. Next week, we'll look at the covenant of grace as it unfolds in the New Testament. And then we will look the week after that at the prophecies in the Old Testament and their fulfillment in the New. And then after that, we're going to move to our application section. And we're going to see how thinking covenantally and understanding how God relates to us affects how we view marriage, work, the church, worship, evangelism, etc. Okay? So that's why it's all the more important for us all to be on the same page theologically. And this is not just so we can pass an exam. This is not just so we can go down the street and show everybody we're smarter than them. This is so that we know this, so that when we go out to apply it, we're applying the truth, right? We have to apply, but we have to apply the truth, not just what we think might be true, or could be true. Right? At least you shouldn't, maybe some of you have, you shouldn't go out and fix a car engine just banging around in a hammer, with a hammer. Maybe that'll work. No. It doesn't know how you do it. Alright. So this is where we are. So now, this is the hard part. You ready? Where do we start? Alright, you're... Okay. What is a covenant? Who remembers what we said a covenant was? It's an agreement or a contract, an agreement between two or more persons. But it's also what? A relationship. Do you remember what our example was of a covenant that is an agreement but has more of a relationship aspect? Marriage, right? It is a contract, but it's more than a contract. It involves promises, but it is more than a promise. It is an oath-bound promise where God takes an oath to fulfill what He has promised. And then lastly, we have our sentence from Palmer Robertson, that it is a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. Okay? Everybody's with me so far, right? All right. Now do you know what time it is? It's 3 a.m. time. It's 3 a.m. time. John, it's 3 a.m. I'm calling you up. What are the elements of a covenant? Promises, curses, uh, parties, and conditions. Yes, there you go. See? One of these days I'm going to call you at 3 a.m. What are the elements of a covenant? There are parties. There is a condition or conditions to be fulfilled. There is a promise or a blessing for fulfilling the condition. And there is also a penalty or a curse for not fulfilling the condition. Why is it important to understand these elements? Can't we just look in the Bible, get out our Strongs, or better yet, get out an iPad version where we can type a search, look for covenant, and then we're done, right? Why not? Because the Word's not always there. We have to look for the substance. And this is the substance of a covenant. Now, the first covenant we studied was the covenant of works. Do you remember who were those parties? God and Adam. And Adam did what? He represented all men. What was the condition? Obedience. What kind of obedience? Perfect, personal obedience. What was the promise? Eternal life. Communion with God forever. And what was the penalty or the curse? Death. Spiritual, physical, and judicial. And we saw that Adam broke the covenant of works and by his breach he fell into what? In a state of sin and misery. Culminating in death. Okay? Why is that important to us? And because God keeps His promises and by His breach, Adam also plunged us into an estate of sin and misery. We then looked at the covenant of grace. And we said that there were two aspects to this covenant of grace. Two ways of looking at it. We almost can use the analogy of a coin that has two sides, right? What was the first side of that coin? There was an eternal aspect. And there the focus is on God, the triune God and His will. And on the inability of man to do anything. That's where the focus of that is. That's where, if we're thinking categorically, we think about election, predestination, God's decrees. But that's not the only aspect of the covenant of grace, is it? There's a second aspect, which is what? We called it in time. And there the focus is on man and his need for redemption. Now, part of why I want to get this across to you is you will run across teachers on the radio, on the television, other places who are going to convince you Everything you thought about the Bible was wrong because we can never focus on man. We can never think about man. We should only think about God. Or, we don't need to be worried about this all stuff in eternity. We need to focus on man. We need to focus on salvation. We need to be focused on saving souls. And the answer is, do not bifurcate these. They are both a part of God's plan and purpose. Okay? But just like we talked about the angels this morning the place to begin with is God and then move to man. Because then that helps us to understand. We can only really know ourselves in relationship to God. Okay, everybody with me so far? You all nodding your heads. You all ready to take that pop quiz I wrote? So you didn't know there was Sunday school pop quizzes. I report that out to your parents. That's right. Okay, so... In the covenant of grace, we call the eternal aspect of the covenant what? Who remembers? Louder, we can hear you. The covenant of redemption. We called it that because it was focused on God's redemptive purpose within the Trinity. And then we call the in-time aspect the covenant of grace. Now, I'm telling you this specifically because... If you all get really um, adventuresome and you go and you pull off people's shelves some theology books and you try and find out about this, you're going to be confused because some people are going to talk about the covenant of grace, some people are going to talk about the covenant of redemption, some people are going to talk about both. And there's a reason why. It's because they're all trying to describe this kind of two aspect to the covenant of grace because it is something planned and decreed by God in eternity past and executed in time. Okay? In the covenant of redemption, we saw that the parties were whom? The Father and the Son, and that the promises of the Father to the Son were to assist the Son in the work of atonement, to give to the Son a people, and to exalt the Son above all others. Again, we saw this morning that second promise is fulfilled in the angel's announcement. All the people. What people? Jesus' people. Okay? That angel, that wasn't just, you know, a really good Christmas carol. That was a covenant promise fulfillment. We saw the conditions to be filled by the Son were to assume human nature without sin. To perfectly obey the law. Not just sort of obey, but to perfectly obey the law. And then also to make atonement for sin, for the violation of the law. In the covenant of grace, in the in time aspect, we saw that the parties were God the Father and Jesus Christ. But what was different? You can cheat. You can look up there. What was different? It's not just God the Father and God the Son, but Jesus is here acting how? As a representative. Like who? Adam. Adam, Jesus. Pop quiz. Where do we go to find that summarized in the Bible? Romans 5. Covenant head, Adam. Head of the covenant of works. Adam failed, everybody failed. Covenant of grace, covenant with Christ. Jesus succeeds, everybody succeeds. Okay? That's how that works. In Mostly for clarity's sake, from my perspective, I mean, the Holy Spirit is involved in the execution of this covenant of grace because the Holy Spirit applies the work of Christ. The reason why I say for clarity is, is you have here God the Father calling a people, planning a salvation, Jesus earning that salvation, and then the Spirit whose task is to glorify the Son and the Father and to apply their work. So and there's some sense in which the Spirit's work is harder to explain because it is intentionally supplementary. It is intentionally assisting. So I'm just trying to keep clarity around the... But but you've raised a good point. Salvation, don't ever forget that salvation is triune. We saw that the promises in the covenant of grace were that God would be a God to His people, that He would give His people a new heart, and that He would forgive their sins and make them holy. These are the promises. And the condition was faith... In Christ. Okay, so if we go back to our friends, right? Stand with me. Parties, condition, promise, penalty. These four things we see that the parties are God and Christ. The condition is faith in Christ. The promise is that God is our God and the forgiveness of sins. I got this question last week. What is the penalty? Of the covenant of grace. Put your thinking cap on for a minute. That's the covenant of works. No. There is no penalty. Because God always fulfills. God is the one keeping the covenant of grace. Yes, but the penalty that he took was the penalty of the covenant of works. He earned our salvation by doing that. So in other words, what is the reason why I say this is this. The condition of the covenant of grace is faith in Christ. Okay? Because that is the condition that God laid down. Christ is acting as a representative for His people. And in order for His people to be a part of this covenant of grace, they must have faith in Him. That brings them under His headship. So, stay with me just a little bit here. So, if we think about this, it can be a little bit confusing at first because we're trying to understand works and grace. So what is the relationship between works and grace? Because of Adam, every person is born under the covenant of works. Every person is born condemned. Every person is a sinner because they sinned in Adam. No one can fulfill the condition of the covenant of works. And that's why Paul says, all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. That's where the covenant of works leaves us. Come on. In the covenant of grace, God graciously transfers the, the elect, those who believe on Christ, and those two categories of people are the same. From the covenant headship of Adam to the covenant headship of Christ. So, when we think about evangelism and we think about the gospel, what we are doing are, we are thinking covenantally because we are fulfilling conditions of the covenant. So, Christ then fulfilled the covenant of works by His perfect obedience. And so, We are transferred to Christ and we are seen to have performed what Christ has performed. And that is why no charge can be laid to the elect. Because you have fulfilled the covenant of works. You have obeyed where Adam did not because Jesus did on your behalf. The covenant of works, what do you mean, when did Jesus' work stop? When did His work stop and when did His grace start? Okay. When did Jesus' work stop? Somebody give me a, somebody give me a Bible verse. It is finished. He lived a perfect life and He finished the atoning death. Okay? So, we, this helps us to understand Um, how these two covenants relate. So let's just keep pushing ahead a little bit. So what is this covenant like? it It is one of peace and of friendship. It is like a marriage. We've talked about this. And it is everlasting. Now, the question that comes up in our minds is this. We've talked about faith. We've talked about faith as a condition. And if we say, well, if faith is a condition, and if I fulfill the condition, then isn't that my works? Aren't I doing something? Remember we also talked way back that there were two types of covenants we could make. We could make unilateral and bilateral. Unconditional or conditional covenants. And so the question then comes to us is, is this covenant of grace Unconditional or is it conditional? Is it grace or is it works? How do we understand this? And you know what the answer is. Is it unconditional or is it conditional? The answer is yes. That's the answer. Now you all are shaking your heads like Fred's lost it. He doesn't know what he's doing. Can't even answer a basic question. What do I mean by that? I'm intentionally not answering the question, right? The covenant is what we call an asymmetrical synergism. Now stop looking up there and look at me for a minute. Who knows what symmetry is? What do we say when someone has a symmetrical face? Same on both sides, right? And you know they do those uh, Photoshop things where they show you your one face really isn't symmetrical with the other side of your face, things like that, okay? So, Covenants must have conditions or responsibilities, right? We've been hammering this for week after week after week. What are our elements? Parties, conditions, promises, curse, right? They have to have conditions. But does that mean that God bargains? Does that mean that God puts up a condition for us that He thinks we can fulfill? How does that work? The requirements are synergistic. What do I mean by that? I mean who has to have faith? Does God have to have faith? Who has to have faith? We do. Two parties. God and man. Who's required to have faith? Man. If man doesn't have faith, can you be saved? The Bible says no. No. That's a synergistic requirement. But wait a minute. If it's dependent upon me to have faith, then I'm in charge. And God's not. And how can God do things from eternity past? If it's, if I'm just happen to be better at having faith than Ed is, then isn't there a difference between me and Ed? And doesn't God love me because of who I am? And not because of who he is? What breaks this conundrum? The requirements are synergistic, but the fulfilling of the requirements are monergistic. Ergistic comes from a Greek word that means energy, action. Mono means one. So what do I mean here? Let me ask the question this way. Chuck, do you have to have faith in Christ to be saved? Where does that faith come from? Whose faith is it? By whom? It comes from God. Could you have had faith apart from the work of God? No. That's what the Bible tells us. It is the gift of God. So the conditions are synergistic, and God knows we can't fulfill the conditions. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, Paul says. Right? We have hearts of stone, Ezekiel says. And so God fulfills the condition on our behalf. Just as He does in the application of the covenant works. We'll look at that in a minute. This is how we have to understand the way the Bible flows. I'm gonna give you a nice easy flow chart. There is a condition. God provides, and then we act. It is always in that order. God is always the mover. God is always the one who provides. We cannot believe without God. We cannot have faith without God. We cannot obey without God. We cannot do anything on our own. God is the one who provides for His own condition. And you see, this resolves a problem that we have. Because what we want to do is theologically pick one or the other. We want to either say, it's all God, and so it doesn't matter if I go out and evangelize. It doesn't really matter if I believe. I just have to figure out if I'm elect or not. Or we want to say, you know, don't even be bothered with talking about God and what God does. I have to have faith. It's me that does it. I have to do it. It's all about me. And let me manipulate my circumstances so that I can get my faith that's mine. Whereas the Bible says, You must act. You must have faith. But you cannot do it apart from God. God initiates. And we don't respond. We are the arena in which God's action takes place. Does that make sense? That faith is not our own. It is the work of the Spirit. That's why we talk about having a new heart precedes faith. I can't believe... Unless I have a new heart. Where do I get the new heart from? You see, if you think about it, this is... You all might disagree. This is relatively complex, what I've just been going through, right? That's why the Bible uses images like, take away a heart of stone, give a heart of flesh. That's why the Bible uses images like, you were dead and God made you alive. That's why the Bible uses images like, filthy rags, God gives you robes of righteousness. God uses all of these illustrations so we don't miss that He is the one who is at work, that we are lost without Him. So what are examples of this? Let me give you just two. First is faith. We are required to have faith. John 3.16. Please, please, please do not gut John 3.16 in your Bibles. That is not being reformed. You must believe on Christ. You must but God's the one who provides the faith. Right? Unless God provides it, we don't have it. Now, I'm going to suggest that as you have opportunity to share the gospel with someone, you do not walk up to them first and say, Frank, by any chance, do you know, has God provided you faith? Because if He has, i got a question for you. No. There are people that do that. They look for pre-evidences of grace before they will actually try to evangelize you. The first part... Is our concern. The second part is whose concern? God's. So you don't worry whom God has given faith. You just go out and spread the good news. God will take care of the rest. Okay? But it's also true in sanctification. The Bible is very clear. Obedience is not an option for a Christian. We are to obey. We are to obey God's will and His law as summarized in the Ten Commandments. But without God, we're unable to obey. He enables us to keep His commands. And so this is, again, asymmetrical synergism. If I could put it this way crudely, we have to do our part, but we are completely incapable of doing our part. So God does it for us. This is kind of like is an analogy, an illustration. Like when you have a young child and they help you cook or they help you fix the car. Right? That's By analogy, that's what it's like. Okay? And so we have to remember here that God is the one who is at work. Everybody with me so far? This is not an easy thing to think through, but this is, I think, at the core of biblical theology of what we call Calvinism, of what we call Reformed theology. All of those are systematic fancy labels for God is the one who is at work. It must occur in our lives, but it cannot occur apart from the work of God. All right. Let's take a look at a few examples of this in the Old Testament and how this covenant works itself out. So i want you to think of the covenant of grace as a almost like a film that rolls out and the more the film goes on the more you understand it or a book the more you read the book the more you understand the characters right there is one covenant of grace that begins in genesis 3:15 let's start there before we go to noah let me just read that genesis 3:15 where god says I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And in Genesis 3.15, what we have there is the first prophecy of the work of Jesus Christ in crushing the serpent, Satan. Now, how clear is the work of Jesus Christ from that verse? Not real clear, right? I mean, it's pretty compact in there. It's only one verse, right? It's compact. It's like, has anybody ever seen an oak tree? Yes? Has anybody ever seen an acorn? How similar are they? Are they the same? Fundamentally they are, aren't they? That acorn, as it grows, then you begin to see the tree. That's what we see in the Bible. This is the very first appearance in Genesis 3. And then again we see in Genesis 6, we see the covenant made with Noah. We see the succeeding instances of the covenant. So in chapter 6 and in verse 9, we see Noah and Noah is righteous and he walks with God and the earth was corrupt And verse 12, God saw the earth, that it was corrupt, and he said, I am determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And so what he then says to Noah is, what I'm going to do is I'm going to start over. I'm going to start over with you. And the promise here is I'm going to extend grace to you. I'm going to show you what my grace is like You are going to escape death. There's a condition to it though. What does Noah have to do to escape death? He's got to build an ark. And he's got to obey God. And he's got to get in the ark. Okay? Why does Noah build an ark? No. More fundamentally than that. Why does Noah build an ark? God told him to. Why does Noah build the ark? The shape that the ark is. Why does Noah get in the ark when he gets in the ark? Why does the ark work and not drown? God shut the door. God lifted it up. We could talk about this in terms of visually if you think about the rain. The rain is God's work that buries sinners and lifts up His people. The ark gets lifted up. Noah obeys... But let's not be let's not you know think that Noah got in a bright idea to build an ark and he was going to do this and no, only reason Noah survives is because God tells him what the condition is, He provides for the condition, and He preserves him. God is the one who's at work. Now, again, what I'm describing here is not exactly the covenant of grace. This is not Jesus' atoning death. This is an illustration of how God works in saving His people in a gracious way. He's unfolding it for us so we get ready and so when Jesus comes we go, aha, this is how God works. And then we get it. Yes. Yes. All throughout the Old Testament, the ones who are saved are saved because they have faith in the promise of God and the one who would come. And we see this, that's Genesis 3.15. That's Noah even believing the promise of God that he would never again destroy the earth. We're going to see it in a minute most clearly in Abraham. They don't know who Jesus is. They don't know where he will live it becomes clearer and clearer and clearer the further we go down. So, for example, in the Old Testament, the place where it is clearest is in the prophets because they start having things like he'll be born in Bethlehem, Isaiah 53. We start to get more and more clarity. But you have to remember, the farther back you go into the patriarchs, the fuzzier it is. But we have to remember that that same promise that they're clinging to is that God will provide... And that God will make atonement. That God will keep His promise. So this is why, for example, you have Abraham. God has promised Abraham that he will be a blessing to all of the nations. And then He says to Abraham, Your blessing is going to come through whom? Isaac, right? Because he has Esau. And then God says, guess what? Kill Isaac. What's Abraham's response? God could be lying to me, so I shouldn't kill Isaac. God could be lying to me, and it doesn't have to come through Isaac. God could be telling the truth, and I need to obey him. But that would mean he'd have to raise Isaac from the dead. That's the only thing that has to happen. Because God can't be a liar, and God can't break his promise. So if that means death has to be reversed, that's what God will do. And you see, He's believing and trusting in that promise. And so now, now the next generation has that promise to lean on. They can say, well, you remember Father Abraham. And so we just, the more we go down the line, the more the film unrolls, the more the tree grows, we see and we understand more and more. So, <clears throat> so for example, <coughs> in Genesis 8, we have A second aspect to this. Noah builds an ark in verse 20 to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and offered some of every clean bird. And when the Lord smelt the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for his intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter day and night, shall not cease. So God is saying here, there is not a final judgment in the context of sacrifice. And so Noah is trying to piece all these parts together. What does this mean? I'm sacrificing. God's not going to curse the earth ever again. He's going to keep me. What does this mean? It means that God is at work and all Noah can do is trust him as far as his faith can take him. He should not be trying to figure things out. God has promised he would not again destroy all living things. The condition that he gives to Noah for keeping this covenant is that he is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, right? How can Noah be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth? Who does that? God, right? It's the same way that the Israelites in Egypt... The Egyptians are all scared because they're multiplying like crazy. Why are they multiplying like crazy? Because God blessed them. It's even clearer in the covenant with Abraham. So we see the covenant of Abraham in a series of steps. In Genesis 12, verses 1 through 9, we see here a promise. God comes to Abraham and He says, I will make you a great nation. But there is a condition... Right, He says, go where I tell you. You have to go to the promised land. Now, how does Abraham know where to go? How does he find out? From God. What happens when Abraham doesn't go to the promised land? When he goes and he wanders off in Egypt, what happens? And then God brings him back. And then he goes wandering off and he does something else. And what happens? God brings him back. And when Abraham gets impatient and he says, you know what, I'm tired of waiting for an heir. I'm going to get myself an heir. And Ishmael is born. Then what happens? God brings him back. Okay, God is fulfilling the condition. You see, it. the life of Abraham is a good example. How many times could God have just said, well, you flunked, you're out, you flunked, you're out, you're done, you're out. No. God perseveres with him. God brings him. We see it in Genesis 15, verses 4 through 6. The promise is that he will have many descendants, as many as the stars and as many as the sea on the seashore, that he'll inherit the land. And the condition is is that he has to obey God, including bondage in Egypt. How does this happen? God brings it about. God is at work in Abraham's life. God is the one who brings them into Egypt. God is the one who brings them out. God is fulfilling His own promise to Abraham. Genesis 17 is, I think, the best example of this. The promise is that He will multiply him exceedingly and give him great descendants. The condition is that he has to walk before God and be blameless. The sign of this is circumcision. And the penalty is that he will be cut off from God's people if he's not circumcised. And you see, what we have here in all of this is God is establishing this covenant. He's establishing a sign of this covenant to remind them that he is at work. And this is how God works. He condescends so that we can understand what he has promised to us. So Abraham is given all sorts of promises. He's given a promise of a seed. He's given a promise of land. He is given a promise of the presence of God. And he is given the promise of the nations. And this is repeated again and again. Now, the key to all of this is in Genesis 15. Turn with me if you've got Bibles to Genesis 15. Okay, this is, God comes to Abraham in verse 1. He says, Fear not, for I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And Abraham says, Well, you know, I don't know because I don't have any kids. How am I going to be great? How am I going to be a blessing to the nations? I don't have any heirs, Lord. My heir is this guy, Eliezer of Damascus. You've given me no offspring. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and he said, Look at the stars. You can't number them. You can't number your offspring. And then what he says is, he says in verse 9, Bring me a heifer, a female goat, a ram, a dove, and a young pigeon. And he says, Cut each of these in half. And what he does is he's setting up a covenant ceremony. You remember one of our last definitions of a covenant is what a bond in blood, sovereignly administered, a bond, bond sealed in blood. And you remember we said that covenants were treaties. The bond in blood part, the Hebrew word is cut, is because what they would say is they would take animals and they would set up a walkway and they'd take the ram and they'd chop it in half and they put half over here and half over here. And they'd take a dove and they'd chop it in half and put half over here and half over here. Cow, whole nine yards, they do it. So you got half an animal on one side, half an animal on the other side. And then the big king would say to the little king, all right, we have a covenant. We have a treaty. You walk between the animals. And what that means is to the whole world, everybody that's watching, if you don't keep the covenant, you're going to be like these animals split in half. I'm going to split you in half. And that's what they did. This is why you read all in the Bible about when Israel rebels against some overlord, what do they do? They send an army to go crush them. That's what they do. That's how things worked in the old days. Still kind of how they work now. Um, But something interesting happens. Abraham sets all of that up. He has him do that. And the sun goes down and Abraham falls asleep. And if we are thinking in covenantal terms, if we're thinking in human terms, what we are completely expecting is God to say to Abraham, Walk between the pieces, keep my covenant, be blameless before me, and I will bless you. It's completely what we expect. The only problem is that's not what happens. And behold, great and a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Abram, excuse me, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted 400 years. He's talking about Egypt. Then as we skip down here in verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. What are the pieces? On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham or Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, etc., etc., etc. What is the flaming torch and the smoking fire pot? It's a picture of God keeping and making a unilateral covenant because what God is saying is, I'm making a covenant with you, Abraham. And when you don't keep the covenant, I will take the penalty. That's what he's saying. Abraham deserves the penalty, doesn't he? Who takes the penalty? We deserve the penalty. Who takes the penalty? Jesus does. Jesus walks between the split animals. He takes our penalty. There is no reason other than the fact that God, in His grace, unilaterally lays down that term that He will fulfill the condition and He will take the penalty on our behalf. This is what God is trying to get us to see in the Old Testament. To see that we're not in charge that we don't know what we're doing. That God is the one who keeps the covenant. And we see this in its, it's becoming... So we had Genesis 3.15, a little bit more clear in Noah, a little bit more clear in Abraham. We don't have time. We're going to pick up with Moses next week. And then we're going to see even clearer in the New Testament, right? Because, let's face it, Genesis 15, you may already know this, is what pops right out at you, Jesus, and the cross? Probably not. You're looking at it you're going, what's with the animals and why are they splitting them and what's going on here, right? But when Jesus is at the Last Supper and He said, this cup is the new covenant in My blood shed for you, that's pretty easy to understand, right? That's what God does. He reveals things more and more and more clearly in the Scriptures. And this shows us that the covenant is a Theme of the scriptures that helps us not only to understand salvation, not only to understand God, but to understand the whole Bible and its flow. All right. I'm over, but I will stay up here and answer questions. So let me close us in a word of prayer. And you all have a wonderful afternoon. See you this evening. We're going to have an opportunity to finish Second Peter together. Let's pray.